Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. All right, we good at the 11 a.m. today? So I mentioned this uh, last week, but my wife and I argue every once in a while, and um, thanks uh, for that. And here's the thing, I don't think that should be a surprise, but every once in a while, um, I used to do marriage counseling, um, I've, I've been in it and I've done it, so I've been on both sides. But not that great at, I don't do a ton anymore, but every once in a while you would get that young couple with uh, just all of the look of pride that you could muster up, and they're like, we never fight. And immediately I'm like, whoa, 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 that's a massive red flag, actually, because generally it means one of you laid down and died. So... Um, <laughs> Like arguing, it's just a part of it. I don't know if you know anything about Enneagrams, but I'm a three, my wife is an eight. And so that combination, like there's gonna be arguments. So you gotta figure out how to do it well. We have a great relationship and marriage, but we do fight. And every once in a while, so the hard part is like many of you, we're both wired to wanna win, especially with our personalities. So it is hard and sometimes we fight to the death, it feels like. But then every once in a while, I just am like, it's just not worth it. And I'm just, I gotta figure out a way to take the blame here. And I'm not even sure how it is my fault legitimately. I mean, sometimes, you know how you, you get halfway through and you keep arguing, you realize, actually, I am wrong. And I'm just gonna keep arguing anyway because you're too deep, you know what I'm talking about? Don't leave me up here. <laughs> so there's that. And then, but then there's other times where I'm like, I'm just done, I'm just tired. So I'm just like, hey, you know what, it's my fault. And every once in a while, I, I, I so give up that it's ridiculous to Nicole too, where she's like, how's it your fault? I didn't even convince you yet that it's your fault. And I'm like, listen, you give me enough time and I'll figure out how it's my fault. But I'm just, I'm done. And if nothing else, my default answer is, if I wouldn't ask you to marry me, we wouldn't even be talking about this right now, right? Like we wouldn't even be arguing. So somehow I can bring it back to me. And so my point in all of that, <laughs> my, that's not marriage advice. That's just my point, and I do have one, is there, there's always blame to go around. And in fact, in any relational conflict, there is blame. And I, this is difficult for us to um, you know, grapple with and admit, and especially if you're going through it right now and it's emotional, and I'll talk about that, but it's always emotional. And so um, it's really hard for you to even admit that. And they're an idiot. And if you knew the circumstances, and I'm sure that's true. But in any relational conflict, like there is some blame to go around. And at some point along the way, you've got to own that, especially to go back to last week, if your goal is to try to get back to the person rather than get back at the person if it's possible. But rarely are we at fault in terms of our own internal narratives. But you've got to, if you're ever gonna have any hope in a relationship where there is still hope, you've gotta own part of your blame. And for some of us, our blame is maybe far bigger than we could ever imagine but we just don't see it. So I'll come back to that in a second, um, as uncomfortable as that is. So we're in part two of Reassembly Required, a beginner's guide to um, repair broken or 
you know, disconnected relationships. And here's what we said last week. It's, it's somewhat intuitive to like start a relationship. And here's the thing that's really important. I'm not just talking about like, you know, marriage relationships, romantic relationship. I, this, what we're talking about applies to every relationship. And there's a lot of repairing that has to be done outside of just your family of origin. I mean, this could be your, you know, HOA relationships. Um, you, you gotta repair those before the neighborhood blows up. It could be, you know, crazy PTA people. It could be, you know, in-laws, your brother that you're on the outs with from three Christmases ago. I mean, this is, this is a lot of relationships. But in those relationships, it's easier a lot of times to kind of maintain or even even to start, it is so difficult to fix. Am I right? And it wouldn't always seem like it on the front end, but it is. I mean, sometimes it feels impossible. And here's the thing that we do that we started talking about last week. When there's a fracture in a relationship where it's disconnected, there's some dysfunction, you're just at odds and you can't figure out the way forward, we almost intuitively reach for relational management techniques. And we don't, I'm not even sure that we're taught it. It's almost like we just figure it out intuitively. But here's what is so important, and you know this already because you know this about you. People do not love to be managed. They just don't. And so when you're like, well, I know the way that we'll fix this. I'll figure out a way to manage you. That doesn't work. And so last week, we talked about the C4 approach to relational management that also happens to be a common form of plastic explosives. So you do it with that what you want. But the C4 approach to relational management is this. And I just think we just kind of do this without thinking. It's convince, convict, coerce, control. In fact, just say that with me again so we're on the same page. Convince, convict, coerce, control. And when you say all those out loud, you're like, I don't think those work. And yet, I mean, come on, just honest self-assessment. How many times have you been in the middle of it with somebody and your go-to next approach is one of those four things? Well, if I could just control them a little bit more and we don't ever say it out loud, but, or I'm gonna convince them, that's a big one for me and I'm fairly good at it. And so I just figure you give me enough time, I'll convince you. It's not always a great thing to do. Um, Convict, coerce, control. And so we end up almost intuitively reaching for those techniques. And so when it's not going well or the thing is broken or starts to get fractured, we're like, this is what I need to do. And the more we reach for those management techniques relationally, the more we manage to just make a mess of the relationship. And then we get to the place where we're so frustrated, where we throw our hands up. And what happens a lot of times is we kind of lock down because we feel locked out or you start to shut down because you feel shut out. And it's like, I don't know how to move forward in this thing. I don't know how to fix this thing. I don't know if there's any hope for this thing. And there might not be any, but Those techniques do not work in relationships. And then here's the other thing that happens. You guys still with me? The other thing that happens, you get to that point and it doesn't work. And so then we just start making excuses because you're like, again, you wouldn't say it out loud, but I controlled, I coerced, I convicted. None of it worked, surprise. And then we start to go, okay, well, you know what? I just don't care. I just don't care. Let me just real quick. Anytime you say that you don't care, especially about relationships that in another season were very meaningful to you, when you hear yourself saying that or thinking that, you should pay a lot of attention to that because you never say, I don't care about things that you don't care about. I mean, just think about yourself. Like you just don't, and you maybe have never thought about it. But almost always when you say, I don't care, it's often the things that you care about a ton. Generally, I don't care is, is translated this way. I'm powerless to do anything about it. And so because, and I wish that I could, but because I, I can't, I'm, my go-to excuse is I just don't care. But here's the reality. Anything that you wish you could change or you wish you could do something about and you can't, those things generally you care about deeply. And the excuse that we tend to hide behind, this is all of us, is I just don't care. 
Now you do care. You don't ever say you don't care about things that you don't care about. And if you can't remember that connection, you end up moving in a place where relationally you're unhealthy. Because when you really care about a relationship deep down and you just decide that you're gonna pretend that you don't care, here's what happens. There's a lot of energy in that relationship, meaning all the angst, all the energy, all the mm, inside of you, and that has to go somewhere. So when you shut it down and you care but pretend you don't care, all of that energy is going to be expended somewhere. And generally, it's expended through that relationships or other relationships in your immediate vicinity, and those people may have nothing to do with the relational conflict. It's just that you've got energy that you have to get out somewhere because you are pretending that you don't care about the relationship, and what happens is, relationally, you become your own worst enemy. And there's parts of the blame, even if it's small, that you simply won't own, and what we end up doing is repeating relationship history that we really care not to repeat. So the first excuse is I don't care. The second mechanism or excuse we go to is I already tried. I already tried. I tried, really that indicates I'm done and I'm waiting on them. Like I did my thing and I'm waiting for them to move in my direction. Here's the only problem with I tried and I'm waiting on them. Now we'll get to this in a minute. There are, I had a conversation after first service about this. There, there are relationships and they're represented here. If you're joining us via Unfiltered Radio, welcome. If you're online somewhere, there's relationships where legitimately you've tried. You've done everything that you could. We'll, we'll get to that later. But in a lot of cases, I tried or I've done everything that I can and I'm waiting on them. The problem with that is the whole goal and what we're talking about is no regrets. And we said this last week, but it's important to come back around. The goal for you in relationships is not reconciliation which sounds counterintuitive to the series, right? But I'll tell you why that's true. Because you cannot control reconciliation. Repairing relationships and reconciling relationships, that requires more than one person. So you can do everything possible and still not repair a relationship. You know that, that it's just not possible. And you can't make reconciliation the goal for somebody else because adults do not work well under somebody else making goals for them. Do that for yourself, don't do it for other adults because the goal is an agenda and agendas undermine relationships. So the goal is not reconciliation. The goal is no regrets. The goal is as far as I possibly can, I wanna keep the welcome mat out. I wanna keep the door cracked open. It's a posture, it's an attitude, and it's a process. And it's why the first decision that we started to look at last week is such a big deal. And the first decision in terms of reassembling, if it's possible, is this. I will get back to the relationship, not get back at the relationship. Because it is our human nature, and I have this as much as anybody, where if you wrong me or I feel like you don't see clearly, I want you to see clearly. I want to get back at you. I want you to get yours, and I want you in some ways to pay for what you did, right? That's in all of it. And this says, no, no, no. I'm going to follow the example, if you're a Jesus follower of Jesus, and I'm going to get back to, if possible, and not back at in the relationship. Because what happens when you say, well, I've already tried. I'm done. In essence, what you did is you've undecided that first decision. And you hide behind, I don't care, I already tried, and then this is another big one, it wasn't my fault. This is the third excuse, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. Now, can I just say this again, just this is for all of us. That is where your internal narrative ends every single time. And again, 
maybe you're right. So I'm not taking that from you. Whatever that situation is that goes to the forefront of your mind, I know a lot of us have one. It's why it makes these series very tension-filled. But here's the reality. Every time your internal narrative ends, it ends with this. You know what I'm talking about? You rehearse everything that happened and they said in that conversation, if I do it again, I know what I would say. And all this stuff that went down and what they did and she did. And then you get to the end of it and you always conclude, well, that wasn't my fault. I mean, I went through it all. I rehearsed every conversation. I'm telling you, it wasn't my fault. That's always where your internal narrative ends, always. But here's the problem. That might be true. It might be their fault, or it might be 98-2, so it's heavily weighted in their direction. But even if it is their fault, it's not the point, because reassembly begins with us regardless of who initiated the mess. Reassembly begins with us regardless of who initiated the fuss, regardless of who started the whole thing at least where it's possible or where it's healthy or where it's safe. I'll talk about that later. So here's the reality. We kind of said this last week. The healthiest, most mature person should go first. And isn't it true in most of your relationship conflicts where you rehearse the story, you're always the healthiest and most mature in the scenario, (laughs) right? I know you feel like I'm reading your text messages, but it's true, or your mind. We all, I know, it's just human nature. You get to the end of it like, well, if they were as healthy and mature as I am, then they would come to this conclusion. So I said last week, if you really, maybe you are, maybe you're the healthiest and most mature person in that scenario. So here's the thing, the healthiest and most mature person, as you see it, they should go first. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I say this every week, you don't have to do any of this. I hope that at some point you begin to follow Jesus and you begin to follow Jesus that's very countercultural to a lot of what you see packaged as Christianity in our culture. So I hope you follow Jesus. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not accountable to any of this. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the Christian message. It is that God moved first in our direction. I mean, John read, I mean, wrote the most famous words imaginable. Somebody's going to write them in the end zone later today. For God so loved the world that he moved in our direction and he didn't do it to get us back. And he could have. He did it to try to win us back, to get back to the relationship. And there was no guarantees that we wouldn't reject him. And yet he moved in our direction Anyway, and now he says, I want you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you call Jesus your savior, I want you to do that same thing for one another. I want you to follow my example and to ensure that we did this and to ensure that we don't hide behind the excuses of other people's behavior, because that's what I do. It's like, if it's weighted heaven in your direction, I'm like, until you get some of your junk together, we can't talk, right? Like, instead of hiding behind their behavior, Jesus asked this unbelievably irritating question. I'm just gonna call it what it is. And maybe you've heard this verse before, but this is an irritating question. Especially, now if, it's, if, it, if this is like ethereal where you're like, you're not going through it right now, but if you ever get in that situation again, yeah, that's exactly what I'll do. If you're in it right now, if you're in a, you know, marriage is difficult or that crazy person down the street or if, if she would just knock it off. I mean, if you're in it and it's emotional, this question from Jesus is so irritating. Here's what he says. Maybe you've heard the verse. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the in your own eye? And again, if you're in the middle of it, you're like, I'm not even gonna answer that question. And what Jesus is saying is this, why do you pay so, why are you so obsessed with what they did? And I get maybe what they did was crazy. Again, I'm trying to give all the caveats. I get there's layers to your story. But why do you focus so much on what they did when you have no ability to control their behavior? And yet, 
you're not willing to acknowledge the potential that you have a part and that's actually the only thing that you have any control over. That's the one thing that you can actually do in regard to bettering your life and following Jesus and experiencing all that Jesus has for, for you. But I already know the answer to the question in your mind. The answer to that question is like, Jesus, if you were talking to Jesus, you're like, all due respect, I'll tell you why. I've got two answers to your question about why I'm so worried about their speck and the log in my own eye. And the first answer to your question, Jesus, respectfully, it's not a speck of sawdust, right? I mean, in the whatever is going on in your mind, you think about the conflict that you're in maybe right now, you're like, it's not a speck of sawdust. She was so rude. That's not sawdust worthy. That's, that's, it's bigger than that. Like he, I mean, he, he didn't even care. There was, there's been no apology or they walked out on us. Like this isn't a little thing. This is life altering, life defining. So you're talking about speck of salt. It was not a speck of salt us. Like they walked out or they won't assume any responsibility for what they've done, right? That's our, our first thing. It's like, Jesus, just, I mean, you know, respectfully. It's not, so, if you knew my story, Jesus, and I'm assuming you know all things, but maybe you just, you passed over mine. If you knew what was going on, it's not a speck of salt us. And then number two, Jesus, I don't have a plank in my eye. Because, and this is how we would, I'm not perfect. I haven't been perfect, the whole thing. I'll I'll give you that. But I didn't start it. And Jesus, I'm I'm pretty, pretty confident. I see clearly. And it was clearly not my fault. And, And God, Jesus, if, if they would ever see clearly, and Jesus, that's what I'm praying for because I care about them. If they, would, if they could ever see what they've done and who they are and what's going on in their life, I just want them to see clearly. God, if, Jesus, if they would ever see clearly the way that I see clearly, which is, uh, this is our prayer, then they can move in my direction. I'm here, they know where to find me. They know how to you know, get in my, they know my number. They know how to text me. And so Jesus, all due respect, are we done? And Jesus would be like, no, no, we're not done. Punk. Here's the second part in verse four. How can you say to your brother, permit me to take the speck out of your eye? So again, let me just put it at street level and say it the way we say it. Let me, because I care for you and I love you, let me fix you. I mean, does anybody else feel that? Sometimes I'm like, if the people around me would just listen to me, everything would be better. You know what I mean? Like if they, I have so much wisdom to dispense and nobody's listening to me. So you're like, let me fix you. Let me correct you. Basically what Jesus is saying is, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But how are you so certain that you're seeing clearly? How are you so convinced that you're seeing everything clearly? Because again, when we rehearse our narratives, we're pretty clear about what's happened and what they did and what we did and the fact that it really doesn't even matter. I mean, we're, we're so certain. And Jesus is like, how can you be so certain? I mean, we always know what somebody else should do, Right? We always know what they need to see. We always know what step they need to take. You've heard me say this a thousand times. We always have crystal clear insight into somebody else's stupidity, somebody else's dysfunction, but we just don't always have that same clarity when it comes to us. And Jesus' point is just this, don't miss it. You're out of order. It's out of order. And the reality is that you're not ready you're not ready to do anything in this relationship. If there is any possibility of reconciliation or reassembly, you're not ready for it because you may not see as clearly as you think that you see. And there may be some more work that God needs to do 
in you. And I get that you're hiding behind the 5%, 95%, and you might be correct. But until you've done this, until you've moved in this direction, you're not ready to do anything because you're human. I'm human. And I don't see as clearly as I think I see. So Jesus is like, how can you say to your brother, permit me to take the speck out of your own eye when, what's the next phrase? When? All the time. When all the time. I mean, just again, maybe this isn't you, so just chill if it's not. You're like, my situation's different. Okay, yeah, your situation's different. But for others of us, you just have to acknowledge what Jesus is saying. It is possible that you have been hyper-obsessed over what they did and the narrative, and I can't believe them, and if she ever says that again, and all this stuff, can you, I mean, it's going on for several years, and Jesus like, the entire time that you've been rehearsing all of those narratives, all the while, there was a plank in your eye. Like, yeah, I'm just saying it's possible, it may not be you, but which should kind of scare us, that the whole time you've been rehearsing the narratives and talking about them and, and you know, telling everybody about what happened, that the entire time you were moving a two by four around in your own eye and you didn't even see it. So he's like, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, in the Greek, the, the term is that it's actually one word, it's a play on words and it literally means translated, when behold, there's a plank in your own eye. Or in our vernacular, like, what do you know? You've got a freaking two by four that's been in your eye the entire time. And then Jesus says this, and Jesus is always a little bit more in your face than people give him credit for. So I didn't say this. This is Jesus' words. End of verse five, or verse five. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. In literal language, you actor or pretender. Like you, you hypocrite, if this is where you're at, even with, I get all the stories and what they did and blah, blah, blah. But if this is where you're at and this is, if this is where you stopped, Jesus would say, not me, you're, you're a hypocrite. Now here's the point where, we're, okay, if we're talking to Jesus again, so go back to my narrative. If you're talking to Jesus, right? okay, so Jesus, let me just summarize to make sure I understand what you're saying because I don't wanna get this wrong. So what you're saying is like, we all have issues, right? I mean, I've got issues, you've got issues. And since I have issues and you have issues, I should just worry about all of my issues in this conflict and then let you worry about your issues. In essence, if I were to summarize Jesus, I should just mind my own business in this relational conflict. And Jesus' answer would be no. That's actually not what I'm saying because Jesus would say, I don't want you to go run to your self-righteous corner to tell your story. I'm telling you about the possibility of reconciliation and restored relationship. So what I'm giving you is a sequential order, one, two, priority, first in this relationship. And I'm just gonna tell you, this whole passage, this is a whole nother message series and I've done series on it. The church, like capital C, has so misapplied this passage, it is not even funny. But in this context, Jesus is saying in that relationship where there is fracture, I'm talking about priority, order of importance. I want you to start with you and your own business first. So he says, Hip, hypocrite. First, order of importance, sequential, one, two. Take the, what? Plank out of your own eye. In other words, I know this is always a part of the message where it gets really quiet. I want you to identify what's yours and I want you to own your slice of the blame. I want you to figure, and in every relational 
conflict, there's something to own. I've never, I mean, maybe, it, maybe it's out there somewhere. I've never sat down with somebody and be like, literally, you don't have a single thing that you could do different. Congratulations, we'll just do one-on-one counseling. You can leave. I've never seen it. You've got to own your part of the blame. And here's the thing. In a lot of cases, it's gonna take a minute. Especially, here's what, here's what I'm gonna grant you. There are those relational, and again, I'm gonna talk about this in a minute. I'm talking about where it's safe. I'm not talking about systems of abuse. I'm not talking about relational abuse. I'm not talking about unsafe situations. That is a whole different thing. And I should not go into too many tangents today, but there's been a whole system of theology for decades where the church will misquote Jesus' words to keep people in relationships that are harming them and abusing them that is not the posture of Jesus in the New Testament. And that is a patriarchal control system in the church that hurts the most vulnerable. And Jesus does not talk about that in the New Testament. So that's just a side note. It may take a minute. In fact, I would just say this. If some of you are like, well, God hasn't answered any of my prayers recently. Let me give you a prayer that God will answer terrifyingly quick. When you just start praying, Heavenly Father, Show me where I'm at fault. I mean, there's a lot of prayers that God hasn't answered. I'm still waiting. It would be nice if you would kind of give me something. I feel like God answers this prayer 100% of the time. Heavenly Father, that's why we don't want to pray it. If, If there's anything in me that I need to own, if there's any fault in me, show me what it is and help me to own it. And I, I just want to acknowledge that's so hard. If you're in a relationship, we're legit. It's like 90% now. I mean, there's been so much stuff that's gone on and you feel like it's 10% you, even though generally our pie designations are probably not accurate, but just in, in our mind, it's so hard to pray that. Because when you pray that, you feel like you're losing just a little bit of leverage in your argument, don't you? I mean, even if it's only 10%, if you have to admit anything, you just feel like it's taken. And in fact, here's the thing that it'll do. This is a whole other message too. It'll start to lower the temperature of the argument, which is kind of Jesus' point. Because anytime you own anything, even if it's the 10%, it starts to change the dynamic and the posture to go, okay, Jesus, I, I think it's mostly them and I'm hoping that you'll do something in their heart, but help me to see what I need to see, what I don't see. Help me to see where I'm at fault. And here's Jesus' promise. If you do, if you're humble enough, if you're self-aware enough, if you're sensitive enough to what I would call kind of the spirit of God's nudge in your heart to see it, which is so difficult, and then to remove it. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then if you're willing to do that, see it and remove it. Then, and only then, you will what? See clearly. You want clarity to see what most people see? I mean, you guys know this. When you get into relational conflict of any kind, the emotion level goes up. And we, when we get on the other side, of it, I think we have enough awareness, I'm gonna assume this for the room and those are online, that we get on the other side and we recognize, man, there was so much emotion in that. And when we are overcome with emotion sometimes, we do not see things clearly. In fact, some of our greatest regrets were as a reactionary decision to relational conflict that caused us to make some really bad decisions. And Jesus is basically like, you want wisdom? 
You wanna see what most people don't see? You wanna have clarity for what's up ahead in relationships? Do you wanna be able to remove all of the stuff and just kind of have insight into what you need to do in such a way that it's gonna be best for your life, your future, and it's gonna give the greatest chance of if there is a chance this relationship being healed, then this is the way to do it. At first, you look at you and then you will see clearly. You will see more clearly. You will have more wisdom. You will have more insight. Now, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't put a period here for a reason. Because every time Jesus asks us to do something, it's never for our benefit. Or it's never for our benefit alone, I should say. It's never about us. It's never about what's in it for me. Because whatever God wants to do in this area, in you and in me, is always about a means to an end. And you know what Jesus means to an end is? Is that where it's possible, there would be restoration and reconciliation of relationship. That's the means to the end. So here's the promise, you hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye and you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is specifically talking about the context of relationship, of knowing each other, of, you know, there's a history and now it is broken. Now it is dysfunctional. Now we are apart. And he says, the way forward is to recognize and remove what is in your eye. And only then are you at a place where you can move in their direction, not to light them up, not to get them back, not with a condescending, well, if you saw things the way that I saw things, to move not to get them back, but to get back to the relationship. And if there's anything about me that's an obstacle, God, I wanna try to own that. I wanna try to own that blame. It might be 2%, but I'm gonna own my 2%. Whatever it is that's an obstacle, I wanna identify it. I wanna admit it. I feel like I lose a little bit of my argument, but I'm gonna admit it anyway. I'm gonna own it. And ultimately, I'm gonna remove it. Can you guys just say that with me real quick? Those four things. Identify it, admit it, own it, and then remove it. Identify, admit it, own it, remove it. And listen, it's so hard. It's so hard. And the thing is, this started all the way back, I think, in the Garden of Eden. There's a thread of this in every single human being. And in fact, for some of you in the context of the church is why you walked away from the church for like a decade and a half because you saw this so misrepresented but there's a thread of self-righteousness in all of us. And it bleeds into relationships and conversations and conflict and we kind of elevate ourselves, but there's a thread of self-righteousness in all of us. And you know this already, but self-righteousness ultimately gets in the way of relationships and reassembly. And self-awareness is the only thing that paves the way. And when you're trying to restore or reassemble or reconcile, I'm telling you, I mean, you know that it requires so much self-awareness. And a lot of times we're just not willing to go there. A lot of times we'd rather live naive, leverage, convince, convict, coerce, control, take what we think is the high ground, but really it's kind of, you know, we're condescending to go, when you see things my way and move in my direction, we'll get this right. It is so hard to move in the direction of self-awareness and to own what is ours to own. So there's two decisions. There's four total I wanna look at in the series. The first one is, I'll get back to, not get back at. And then the second decision is I will own my slice of the blame. The first one, real quick. I will get back to, not get back at. Let's, um, there's two people up here. That was incredible. Let's see if everybody else can do it this time. 
ready for that? For, I will get back to, not get back at. And then the second one, I will own my slice of the blame. I'll remove whatever's in my eye. And maybe I've seen it, I just haven't wanted to acknowledge it. Or maybe I haven't even seen it so that I can see the relationship more clearly. And then here's what Paul says when he was writing to a group of Roman Christians who were, I mean, they were going through it. And I love this verse. In fact, on the way out, you're gonna get a little sticker with this verse on it that I'm hoping you take and internalize because I think this is the verse when we think about repairing relationships. Here's what Paul writes. If it's possible, because here's the reality. It is not possible in every relationship. And I've said this throughout the series, and this, is, this context is so important. There's relationships where I really genuinely feel like I've done everything that I could. I've owned what I could. I've tried to humble myself. I've forgiven. And at the end of the day, I can't restore that relationship because it's not just up to me. And so Paul acknowledges that. Like, if it is possible. But the problem is far too many of us hide behind the excuses of I've tried, I don't care, whatever, and we haven't done everything that we can. So, so Paul says, I just want to acknowledge, there's some relationships, it's not possible, it shouldn't be possible, forgive, get the heck out of there, don't ever go back, you shouldn't even have a relationship with them. You can love them in Jesus' name at a distance. That's just the reality of relationships. But if it's possible, as far as what? It depends on you. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. Addressing and owning what's ours is what depends on us. There's a bunch of other stuff that doesn't depend on me. I can't control you. I can't control how you respond. I can't control what you do. I can't control your toxicity. What I do control is owning and addressing. That's what depends on me, which means reconciliation, repairing, the hope of restoration always begins in the mirror. Every single time. And seldom do we start there. And also, I was hoping to work in Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror, but it didn't work out today. But it always, it always begins in the mirror. It begins by praying this. God, if there is something in me that I need to see, help me to see it. I dare you to pray that. That is so difficult to pray. That is easier for me to say than it is for you to do. God, if there's something in me that I need to own, Tell me to own it. That's the place that he's inviting you to begin. For some of you, that will actually be the place of freedom because that will be the first time you're able to let go of some other stuff in your life to recognize this is what depends on me. This is all I can do. I can't do anything about them, so I'm gonna follow Jesus to do what he's asking me to do as far as it depends on me. And then it begins with us doing what we hope and what we pray the other person is willing to do. Because isn't this true in conflict? and relational tension, you hope and you pray that the other person is gonna own their slice of the blame. Come on, isn't that what we hope? That that other person is legitimately going to own their slice of the blame. And here's the thing, if we aren't willing to do what we are convinced they should do, what does that make us? And Jesus would say, I love you, you're a hypocrite. Because you're not willing to do the very thing that you are absolutely convinced that they should do. And there's so many excuses that we hide behind, but when we discover there might be a log, two by four, it's a speck, whatever, but there's some blame in me where it's so important, where it is safe, where it is appropriate, you might need to move in the direction. 
You might need to write a letter. You might need to send an awkward text. You might need to call. You might need to have a beer, have a coffee. You might need to set up a whatever. You, you might need to, but here's what I know. Specifically, you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not, you don't have to do any of this. You have been called to go first. That's only 5%. You have been called to go first with your 5%. You have been called to follow the example of your savior. And I just wanna encourage you on this. We'll get ready to close. By going first, it's possible that your humility, your confession, your self-awareness, your ownership, it might unlock something in somebody else that they have been unable to figure out how to unlock by themselves. In fact, you going first might be the thing that somebody else needs because they legitimately don't know what to do and how to move forward and they need somebody else to go first to model the way of Jesus. Here's the thing that I've learned um, and I've learned this the hard way. So like just, I've learned this the hard way. But here's what I've discovered over time in terms of those relational conflicts and that tension and all that stuff that, that comes to the surface that has changed honestly my attitude and, and my patience level and my awareness and my ability to kind of like pull back because I, I have an, at times aggressive personality. But here's what has helped me so much. The more aware I am of what God has yet to do in me, the less aware I am and the less consumed I am by what he has yet to do in the people around me. And in that relationship, God may not change anything about the relationship, but he'll change something in me and it'll change how I respond to you. And it'll change how I look at you and how I talk to you and how I talk about you. And that's the invitation of Jesus. If I want you to move in my direction and God would say, where it's possible, I wanna do something in you. I wanna do something through you. And by you going first and modeling the way, you may unlock something in somebody's heart that seemed like it was never going to be unlocked because of your humility. And over time, as you begin to embrace that, here's what will happen. Those verses won't tick you off as much. Those verses will not be as uncomfortable. Those verses are reinterpreted as Jesus' way to go. I know it's hard on the front end, and I know you can't control them. This is actually the way that I'm inviting you into peace and inviting you into contentment and inviting you into joy and inviting you into the life that I have for you that is life to the full. I want you to do all that you can and live with no regrets. And what you might discover is that in that relationship that you're so amped up about that what was, what was wrong with them may be a lot smaller than you realized. And what sometimes we'll find uncomfortably is that what was in us is far bigger than we ever imagined. And so the decisions so far is, God, with your help, I wanna get back to, not back at. And I wanna own my slice of the blame. And I think this goes without saying, but can I just say it anyway? You don't need to work in percentages when you own the blame, okay? Like when you come, you don't need to go like, I'm, I'm going first and I'll follow the example of my savior, Jesus. I'm owning 5% of this. Just leave percentages out of it and own your thing and be quiet about it, all right? So say these with me real quick, one more time. I will get back to not get back out. I will own my slice of the blame. And just for a second, can you imagine what would happen potentially in our families? Can you imagine what would happen in our communities? Can you imagine what would happen in our nation? Or, well, that's, that's a little over the top. No, 120 guys on a hillside in the first century decided to do this. This is no hyperbole, and it changed the world. 
Can you imagine what would happen in our world? Can you imagine if every single Jesus follower just began to live out what they profess? began to do what Jesus said they should do. Can you imagine if every Jesus follower in our country, in your neighborhood, in our churches around the world, if they stop constantly pointing the finger at everybody else and began to just look in the mirror? Can you imagine the humility that would enter the national conscience? Can you imagine the posture change? Can you imagine how it would rearrange our attitudes? Can you imagine Jesus followers would no longer be seen as self-righteous, hypocritical, know-it-all, judge all my behavior idiots. We would be the most humble, winsome people on the planet because we would be the most self-aware people on the planet. And one of the things in our current cultural climate, and this is just statistics will tell you this, people don't view Jesus followers that way. And Jesus says, follow me. I want, you to, I want you to come with me into this. I want to invite you to go first in this very specific way. And it really comes down to the word that we talk about all the time. Jesus, I surrender. I surrender what's in me that I need to lay bare before you. I surrender where, where I'm to blame. I surrender where I need clarity. I'm surrendering what is in me that I haven't wanted to acknowledge. And I surrender them to you because I can't do anything about them. But I surrender I'm gonna live with no regrets and I'm gonna follow the example of my savior and I'm gonna trust you with all the outcomes. And you may not change them, but you'll change me. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this moment. I've been so aware in this series that it is, it is difficult to preach because there are a thousand layers there are so many stories and what abouts and if you only knew and if I could tell my story, and I get all of that. And I can't carry that weight, but you know, and you're the one that invites us into all of this and you have the, the moral authority to teach it. I don't because you're a savior. They gave up everything for us and you moved in our direction to get us back, to win us back, not to pay us back. And now you're inviting us to do the same. So God, wherever this lands, give us the wisdom to know what to do. Give us your spirit's courage to do it. As we're about to sing, Lord, have your way in us. Help us to see as you see. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.